Thank you, brother. There is a semi-famous story of unknown origin from the mid-19th century English world. Uh, it take place, takes place at a drawing room party. That's just a British version of like hanging out, basically, uh, where a pretty famous local actor was asked to give a recitation, stand up, to recite something for the group's entertainment. He stood up, and he wanted to be gracious to his audience, and so he said, uh, I'll recite anything you would like me to recite, any suggestions, and no one suggested anything. So an old preacher happened to be there. He was sitting in the back. I don't know how he got there. He likely must have been crashing the party or something, because normally preachers didn't get invited to drawing room functions on a high society level like this, but he was there. And he stood up and he said, I'd like to hear you recite the 23rd Psalm. Well, the actor was a little shocked at that, uh, but he had thrown himself open, so he had to do what the man asked him to do. He happened to know it, and he said, all right, I'll do that. And he began, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, and he quoted the psalm. He repeated it with complete eloquence, masterfully interpreting it. His diction was beautiful. And when he was done, there was spontaneous applause throughout the entire room. And the actor, you know, figuring he'd get back at the old gentleman, said, now, sir, I'd like to hear you recite it. Well, the old preacher hadn't bargained for that. But because of his love for Christ, he stood up and he repeated the 23rd Psalm as well. His voice cracked it broke. It wasn't very beautiful. The interpretation wasn't really that good. When he got done, there was no applause, but there wasn't a dry eye in the room. The actor, sensing his own emotion as well, stood up and said, ladies and gentlemen, when I performed, I have reached your eyes and ears, but this preacher has reached your heart. He continued, the difference is this, I know the psalm but he knows the shepherd. What makes the difference when it comes to saving faith? How do you know if you are correct or counterfeit when it comes to knowing the great shepherd? How do you know if you're intentional or you're just imitating? How do you know if you've been conned or you're conned yourself or you're converted? That's the title of the sermon today, Conned or Converted. The church today is filled with what the early church fathers called simony, simony. From our passage you just read, they termed a false professor in Christ to be someone committing the sin of simony. And that is to you know, be a tare or a weed among the wheat. That's how our Lord taught it. The one who has knowledge in the head, but has concrete in the heart. And that does not equate to saving faith. In our study of Acts, we have seen something similar before this story of unbelief. In the death of a lying couple, if you remember Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5, they were the ones who had tried to fool the church by passing off that they had saving faith's fruit only to reveal that they both were conspiring, greedy liars, and they never had saving faith's root. 
In that story, God himself took direct action, killing both husband and wife. From then, we learn God always knows every heart perfectly. And that is still true in this passage today about God. Even right now, that is true in this very room. God knows every heart in this room perfectly. Our text today, however, shows us that though God may know every heart perfectly, we do not. And yet we are still called, as the people of God, to minister among the people, oftentimes among a group that is conned or converted, or that has elements of both. We need discernment to do what we're called to do as a church. And that's what this passage really points to. Can we have the discernment we need? This morning, we're going to see four, or, uh, yeah, four points. We're going to see the key differences between those that are conned and then those that are truly glorious, gloriously converted. A warning to the fake today before we begin. It is a dangerous thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I have in my notes to say, you are not here by mistake. I'll be honest, that was in anticipation of guess. But I also say to anyone, anyone, whether covenanted member here or not, whether child sitting in the chairs right now, it is a dangerous thing to fall into the hands of the living God. None of us are here by mistake, and God is not silent this morning. You may be a wretched liar to those around you, but you cannot fool God. No one does. A heart of unbelief is a heart of unbelief. If that is you today, listen carefully this morning. I implore you so that you may find hope in Christ and the gospel that we preach. Four points. The conned, they worship self, whereas the converted worship the Savior. The conned seek to control wisdom, while the converted receive it. They receive wisdom. Those who are conned remain in sin. The con remains in sin. The converted repents of sin. And fourthly, we'll see the conned desire to stay and pray, whereas the converted, they desire to go and obey. That's where we're headed. Look at point one with me. Point one is the conned, they worship self, whereas those who are converted, the converted worship the Savior. Conned self converted the Savior. Our example today is Simon the Magician. That's who you just heard about. He is not a good example. He is a bad one. Recorded by the hand of God in Acts as a narrative example of what not to do. On the outset here, I will say there is debate among biblical scholars as to whether he truly believed. But the evidence that he is in the fold of God so clearly points to no from this passage and that is my opinion. I do not know that I could say confidently he was converted. Really, the passage isn't to decide whether or not he's saved. The passage is, the thrust of it is a warning to consider and test your own faith. That's why Luke includes it. The only way we can argue his believing is authentic is by saying that God alone knows the hearts of men and women, not us. Now, that's true. Hear me say this. That is absolutely true. And we teach that God will absolutely judge or pardon Simon and those like him on the last day of judgment. He'll do it to an eternity in heaven or hell, and God knows that, and he's known it perfectly. However, we are not on the last day in this passage, in their context, 
or today in this room. It is not the last day. Jesus has not broken open the sky and come back for us and separated wheat and tear. So therefore, the church has a responsibility to be a pure bride as much as we can with the tools that God has given to us. We use his word to determine the fruit of a person. It doesn't match the root of what scripture says. You can have a faith that is not saving. The Bible is clear about this. I cite Esau and Judas, Demas, and Ananias and Sapphira, who you've met, the immoral man in 1 Corinthians 5, just to give you a few. And I think Simon, in our text, I think he worships, like we're talking about in our first point. I think he seeks, I think he remains, and I think he desires. All our four points, really. But he just does all the wrong things. He does not do so in a way that even though it simply says he believed, therefore he should belong to this church. That's not the message here. This passage is a warning to anyone and everyone who would consider the things of God Excuse me. to be something trite or something we simply add to our lives. The problem with our passage and why I'm doing this you know, belaboringly here uh, in this first point is Satan sows uh, the seed of simony so deep at times into the church, and this is the first of it, so deep that it is hard for us to distinguish. But if you remember, and I want to give you this parable at the outset to help interpret this passage. If you remember, Jesus taught on this very thing. There's a parable in Matthew 13 where Jesus says, he says, the kingdom of heaven is to be compared to a man. So just listen to this story. A man, excuse me, a man who sowed seed, good seed, it says, in his field. But while the man was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and he went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to the master, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But the master said, No, no. Lest in gathering the weeds... You root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them and bundles and to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Best we can tell Simon is the first weed or tear sown by Satan in the New Testament church. John MacArthur helpfully says that The work of the church is difficult. The work of the church is not difficult because of what Satan's doing in the world. It's difficult because of what Satan's doing in the church. That's what makes it hard. You see, we must do all we can to get this right and leave that which is truly known by God to him. So this passage wants to come and equip our church today to spot these cons the best we can and avoid the error ourselves. So with that out of the way, look at the first section here in verses 9 through 13. When we're introduced to Simon here, we see that before he has his religious encounter with God's servant, Philip, he has dabbled in the sin of sorcery his entire adult life in worship of his favorite God, little G. You know who it is? Himself. Himself. 
Verse 9 states he was saying that he himself was somebody great. Somebody great. It doesn't get clearer than that, does it? Simon's first love is his ego, his pride, and he worships himself by getting the attention of others any way he can. Now, we see in 9 and 11, the main source of worship for him was through the practice of white magic. You know, that is Satan or demonic power that is posing as God and posing as being good and from God. There is dark and light, even in, at least in name, even in the occult, in the dark. The Greek, the Greek word, the root word, magos, or, or magos here, is the same word that we get magi, magi, right? Which is like the wise men. So you remember in Luke, it was the three wise men, the magi as they're called. These are people who practice all these pagan, background-driven type understandings of the occult. Zoroastrianism and other, other big, you know, you know, dark entities. We have no reason to believe that these amazing feats that he's doing are false. They're happening. They're just happening under the domain of darkness, and the empowerment is from, from Satan and evil. That's what he's doing, and he's done it for a long time. Whether it is like magicians today that have a master of illusion as well with it, or if he's just only empowered by demonic forces, it's clear he's doing what he's doing, and he's good at it. He's good at it. Simon loves Simon, not the Savior, not God. That's where he starts. You see, in our sin and depravity, we're all born just like this. We're all enslaved to our desires and sins. We're self-deceived in them. Even if we peddle the power they give us and we say they serve God even or other things, it's not true. He called himself great. Verse 10 shows us that he did it so much that the people also called him great. It said they called him what? The power of God that is called great. And it just isn't true. It's a lie. We know it's not true because although it has lasted for many years, look at verse 11. Verse 11 points to the bondage that these people have been under in years as they followed this man. But it's contrasted, isn't it? All of this conned unbelief, right, in, in Simon, is contrasted with this converted man's message in verse 12. But when they believed Philip, the people, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, verse 12 says. Do you notice the contrast here, right? I mean, people who are conned, they're not worshipers of God. They're worshipers of self, right? They're worshipers of idols that they make in their own images that they bow down before. But converted people, preachers like Philip preach a message Notice the difference. Notice the difference. Philip isn't advancing his kingdom or his name like Simon. He's advancing God's kingdom and the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus. Because of this selfishness, or excuse me, this selflessness in Philip, there we go, the right word here, this selflessness, there are now many new converts, true believers are in this text ready and to follow and make much of Christ. We have no reason to doubt in this text, and praise the Lord, right, that God did a work here in Samaria. But it's not our focus, right? Luke wants us to see our focus is Simon. 
Verse 13 is where the difficulty begins for us, right? Notice it says that in this authentic revival in Samaria, Simon himself believed. And worse, he was baptized by Philip. And he continued with him, it says. Well, look, you may be listening. You're like, well, there you have it. Like, you know, there shouldn't be an argument completely against this, Wes. He believed. He was baptized. That settles it. Leave him alone with all the other serious following Jesus stuff. It's just legalism, right? He made a decision. He decided in his heart to follow Jesus and, and, and be baptized. He believed. What amazes him about his new belief? What's the next verse? When people stand before God in the stars and they see God's righteousness that they absolutely don't deserve, or maybe when they stand in the train room of God's holy tabernacle and they see you know, angels declaring holy, 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 and they realize that they're a sinner and they behold God's righteousness and he counts it to them, what, what normally happens? Humility, right? Humility. That's what they're amazed by. They're amazed that God could love such a wretch like me. The converted are, are, are reminded of it. What does Simon have? Verse 13b, after he's baptized, after he continues, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Same word amazed is used in verse 9. When he making himself great, used to amaze people. Now he is amazed, but it's not because he's seen Jesus. It's because he's seen these signs and these wonders. And it's got, him, it's got, his, it's got his ears and his thoughts and his brain itching and moving and thinking about what he can do with them. I think the text is really clear for that reason. In other words, self is still in view for Simon. He sees dollar signs, more fame, more control. All he has to do is believe and, and get wet. It's easy, right? I mean, everybody was doing it. The con don't want a savior. They want more self-gratification. The con worships self. The converted worship a savior. Look at point two now. The con, they seek to control wisdom in this passage. The converted receive it. They receive wisdom. Now, remember our broader context, okay? This is Luke recording for you and I an important account in the early church, a first account, as we pointed out, of this idea of sowing. You know, Satan also is sowing something in the church. And, and uh, you know, we're going to learn from this, the fulfillment of Acts 1.8. It is happening here. The gospel really is advancing from Jerusalem to now Judea and Samaria, which we should probably lump into one kind of area in our text. Um, it really is happening. And that's what explains the affirming sign of the apostles and the spirit falling in our verses. Now, we, we won't look at this in detail today for the sake of time, but verses 14 through 17, they're not given for us to understand baptism precisely. So you should not be confused and take this passage and say, oh, all my doctrine about baptism can come from here. If you do that, you're going to be very frustrated because if you keep reading Acts, there's other times where the spirit ain't falling and they already had it. And, and then it's like, oh, wait, now they, they got it again. And it's, I mean, Acts is not a book to come to and say, let me figure out my doctrine about what is and is not <laughs> baptism. However, I don't want us to be confused by the spirit following, falling, coordinating with baptism. Here, we shouldn't think that these people are not saved. Okay, Th these people are saved by faith in Christ just like you and I, and all these different accounts in the book of Acts, when it comes to 
the Spirit's filling and those things are tied to the apostolic tradition of Acts, showing the authority of God affirming over and over again that he is doing a work. That's the meta big narrative. And we should not lose ourselves in argument over the doctrines, which are they're necessary. We believe they're necessary. We guard them carefully, sure. But for the grand narrative purpose to see what's happening in the book, the arrival of Peter and John in our section here is important, not to hammer out baptism, but to, but to, just to show that, look, the, the apostles, right? Like, Jesus said they'd be the ones in Acts 1-8 to go to Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So it's with their authority that they're showing up, and it's this greater fulfillment. So they've heard the good news of the gospel in Samaria, right? God, man, Christ, response, and it has happened. In verse 14 through 17, those who truly believe, they receive this sign of the new covenant, and for them, it's authentic. The church is really growing in Samaria, just like Jesus said. Amen, right? I mean, this should get you excited. I hope it does. Like Jesus said something. He says he's going to do it. Some people patiently endure, right, through persecution and trial, hard times, and what happens? He does it. But the con Simon just seeks to control and manipulate such things. All we have to do is read verse 18 and 19. Look how clearly the contrast is. That's what was going on. 14, 15, 16, 17. Look at 18, 19. Now, when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me these powers also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit too. What a fool. You cannot buy a movement of God. Artist. Shailen said very clearly one time, if you come to Jesus for money, then Jesus is not your God. Money is. And you can take that and plug in anything. If you come to Jesus for a good, then Jesus is not your God. That thing is. People receive the Holy Spirit by God when he regenerates them from death to life. Sin's power is broken. They walk free. They know God. And anyone seeking to affirm that would understand the power that that was belongs to God. It belongs to God. We walk in it. We preach it. We believe it. We live by it. We hope in it. We do not control it. We don't. We make ourselves available to God to be a vessel of his mercy to someone else if he would only use a a wretched pot, a broken pot even of clay, We would gladly submit ourselves. We would consider ourselves cut off from him if it meant that someone else could believe and that he could use us to preach the gospel to them. But we we dare not say we're going to have the power to do it ourselves. It's God's power, Simon. You know, not Simon. Not those who are conned throughout the centuries and even today. They say and do the things of God with a selfish agenda of serving self. They want to control others, not help others. The cons seek to control wisdom. Why? Because ultimately they remain in their sins. That's our third point. You see, this this short point here, though, about seeking to control, that's really what's going on. Simon's request seems earnest, right? But just remember the man he was. The man he was wanted to control those people. He spent decades being the man, and now he's not the man anymore. He stepped to the sideline. So instead of just you know, slandering that act, he'll just jump in there with it. Play church, you know, 
These sheep are cool. I like the sheep. I'm a shepherd. Give me that power. I'll do it. No, Simon. No. And one way we know that it gets affirmed that, that he is after something else is Peter's response. And this is point three. The con remains in sin. So listen, first, I guess recap. We've seen those that are con, they worship themselves, while those that are really converted worship the Savior. And then we've now talked about those who are con, they are seeking to control while those converted, they just receive it. And they walk in it. Well, now we see why. Those who are con remain in sin while the converted repents. Okay, so we've got remaining and repentance. That's the difference. Look at verse 20 through 23 with me. Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the, the, the gift of God with money. You have neither pot, part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours. Pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Okay, can we just point something out real quick? In Peter and John going, which by the way, this is Luke's last time to include John. Okay, we don't, we don't, it's not going to be Peter and John anymore. We're going to keep moving forward. John just kind of disappears. This is the last time he's mentioned in Acts. But I love this because these two need to go. If there's anything funny business going on in Samaria, guess who's going to call it out? Peter, which we're about to talk about. But you've also got John there. Why? Well, Peter was the bold one. John was the more relaxed of the two. Y'all remember from our gospel? John the beloved? John the disciple? John the gentle? John the one who was there at the foot of the cross taking care of Mary? John who would love these babies in the faith in Samaria, encouraging them to persevere, encouraging them to know how beautiful Jesus is? We got John. John's there, and what's he doing with the converted? He's encouraging them as they repent of their sin. Now, I'm taking some liberty with that, but have you read John? <laughs> have you read 1 John before? Go read 1 John if you're discouraged about your own sin and you don't know how to repent. No one should say, I don't know how to repent of my sin and I'm converted if they go read 1 John. Because that dude's going to come alongside you and say, hey, if anyone says that, there's, you know, that they don't have sin and then they hate their brother, they don't, they're not, they're, don't trust them. Don't trust yourself. And just when you're like, I'm making God a liar, he's like, but hey, remember, you got an advocate in Jesus, the righteous who loves you. I mean, John is like, come on. And I just, John the beloved's there, right? And we need him. We need him for the converted, the ones who are repenting of their sins in Samaria. But Luke wants to show us that then we have Peter. And we need Peter. More severe. Bold. Put there by God for the purpose of calling out simony, and now literally calling out Simon. The con want to remain in their sin, but they need this. Literally, the way this is structured, Peter literally leads out, basically saying, to hell with your money and, you, and what you call God. That ain't me. That, that's literally the Bible right there. To hell with your faith that you're calling and your money. To hell with it, Peter says. Man, that's, that's heat. 
That's serious. It's called discernment. And he's sharing the truth in love. Even if the truth is hard and offensive, this is exactly what a con man like Simon or a false professor in the church needs to hear. There's no confusion whatsoever. You heard his words. He doesn't mix them. No doubt, we know Peter is confronting this. He addressed this issue. Let's just recap in our own words, right? Verse 20. Translation, you don't love God, Simon. You love the idea of God. That's what you love. Your desire is to, to obtain faith with money. And that's left you with worldly riches and no faith at all. 21, you don't have the spirit because you thought you could manipulate the spirit. And your heart is the problem. Even if your body has followed the right path in baptism, Simon, your heart is as dirty as it was when you were born. Repent. Yeah, and maybe, maybe verse 21 when he's really hammering in there. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. Your heart is not right before God. I think of all the people that I've talked to who would swear by a mantra prayer they prayed accepting Jesus into their heart while their heart was truly far from him. We are lying and deceitful people. Our nature is to be deceived. Our heart is wicked and desperately ill. Who can know it? Not us. And we want to evoke the power we have to say, I know that I know that I know that I know that I follow Jesus and I believe, but we live however we want. Or we possess all the, all the fruits of assignment. We want to remain in our sin. We want to promote self. We want to take, I mean, the selfie generation is obsessed with numero uno, me. And in the church culture that we have and we're surrounded by, Peters are getting less and less and less, quieter and quieter. And John's, which we do need, are getting louder and louder and louder. It's okay to be okay. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to, it's okay, just love. And, and, and we're missing a key ingredient. New work happens in Samaria. No one remains in their sin. You walk in repentance. I think that's what verse 21 is getting at. You have neither part or lot in this matter. You're deceived because you're, you're able to be around these people. And God bless Philip, right? Because I think Philip is only held out to us as a faithful minister. And yet, despite his carefulness in preaching the gospel, his carefulness in doing it with those people, he still allows into the church a wolf. That's going to happen, right? I mean, here you go. And it's going to keep happening. You've read the rest of your Bible. You've been taught church discipline in this church. You, you know that despite our best efforts, this can still happen. Why? Because this man is unwilling to repent. Verse 22, you must repent of sin. I mean, Peter's message is so clear. One word, repent. Your heart's not right before God. Repent. Your heart's not right before God. Repent. Your heart's not right before God, Simon. Repent. Repent. He holds out repentance. I repeat it right now because it doesn't sound loving to tell someone to repent of their sin. But if you keep at the idea of what repentance is, turning from their sin and turning to something better, it does become something beautiful. If they'll do it, you must really pray to God in merciful begging for his grace to, re to revive your withering heart. That's verse 22, right? Look at it. The intent of your heart may be forgiven you. 
I mean, look at the may, look at the possible. I mean, Peter's saying, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that what Philip told you and what you said you believe is authentic. What I'm going to tell you is what you're saying, trying to buy the Holy Spirit up in here, that ain't right. That's sin. And it could be keeping you, Simon, not in a, just a basic trap. Look at verse 23. In a serious trap. And ensnared, caught, deceived. Obvious to me right now. Eventually, it will be obvious to all. And you best believe it is going to be very obvious to you in heaven if you stay in the gall of bitterness, if you stay steeped in the bond of iniquity. His sin has been like a tea bag in the water of his created in the image of God body. And forever, that, it started that way and it has been staining him and getting darker and darker as he's grown. Just like sin does for all of us. Peter's bold for good reason. Simon needs to hear this. Okay, the bondage he's under of lukewarm faith is very severe. It is a faith that doesn't, faith, I'm using air quotes, that does not bring the hope of God's love. Instead, it only evokes the wrath of God. Confusing for me and you in the church as we labor alongside such people, it's not confusing in heaven. You know, Christ set out after the fact to write to the churches in Revelation and either to commend or condemn what their actions were. And as he writes to the church in Laodicea, he writes these famous words. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Because if you were, that'd be great. I, I know God. God says, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. God would rather Simon be white hot in his faith and obedience or cold in his unbelief. But not this deceptive path. Those leaders in that church needed to bring the message of Peter in our text to those lukewarm in Laodicea. They needed to take what Peter has done and do it there in Laodicea. Why? Because they had lukewarm people. They had a church that wasn't really a church. Was it really God's people in Laodicea? They're not really like against the culture like in, in, in its sin, but they're also like kind of you know, like give in and it's just confusing. Simon has claimed faith that saves apart from any seriously demonstrable good work. He remains in this sin long enough to fail the test of assurance of God. God is graciously giving him a test in this harsh rebuke. His sin, however, has found him out. James is very clear in a case like this. Listen to James today. What, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? He continues later on. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, James is a smart guy because he says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. <laughs> you do well. You do well, Simon. You believe that God is one, that you got right theology, that you've been born again, that you've been baptized, you trust God, you trust Jesus. You believe that? Good. You do well. The demons believe, James says. The demons believe that, and they shudder. Listen to this question from James. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Answer, no. <laughs> Let me answer that for us, right? No, we do not want to be shown that. Simon's being shown that now. 
See, that's God's grace toward a con person in the midst of before they die and breathe their last. You see, we are not saved by our good works, but we are saved for our good works. To glorify God as the only one who saves. And why is that? Because God's got an authentic gospel message that has to keep going from the, from the Samaria to the ends of the world. Who's going to take it there? You best believe it's those who are actually repenting of their sins. It is those who are finding in justification by faith alone, a sanctification and a progressive holiness in God alone. They're finding both of those things and they're gripping them tighter than they can ever imagine. When they begin to lose grip of one and they're not so holy, they're reminded of their justification. And when they begin to waver in that and trust too much in their own, in their own good works, God thumps them on the head with conviction. You are not your own. I bought you with a price. That's who's going to continue, not Simon. Those who say they believe but don't have God's glory in mind, they're always going to remain in their sin unless they repent. If that doesn't seal our sermon, the response of Simon Peter's rebuke, I think the response will. Here's our last point in closing. The con, they desire to stay and pray. Um, that's what I'm using for this. Stay and pray. Air quotes on purpose for you note takers. They desire to stay and pray, but the converted in our text, they desire to go and obey. Also quotes. Stay and pray, go and obey. Verse 24 first, it says, Simon answered, Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Verse 24, Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Verse 24 again, Simon answered, oh, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. What a discouraging answer, no matter how you put inflection on it. You know, we expect authentic, godly sorrow that leads to repentance when somebody's told to repent and believe the gospel. But in Simon's answer, we hear instead worldly sorrow. Paul commends the Corinthian church that he writes to. He writes to them and says, you were a people that you had, you had a difference between godly grief and worldly grief. He writes to them saying, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. That's what we hope and expect after sharing something like Peter's message to a guy or a gal like Simon. We, we, right? we, we share the truth in the midst of like this wrong doctrine. Like You can buy the Holy Spirit, man. Like Are you even saved? We share the truth, repent. Godly grief will produce what? Repentance that leads to saving faith, that cry out, you know, crying out to God. A pure conscience will be given to a wicked sinner. How amazing when that happens. That's what we hope for here, but it's not what we see. What do we see? When told to repent and seek the face of God for mercy himself, Simon forfeits his responsibility. He forfeits it to Peter and asks Peter to pray for him. He's explicitly commanded, you repent and you believe. And he defaults to what? More public affirmation. He needs to hear Peter pray again for him. Maybe he's even in this moment thinking about the other ears around him. 
missing the angel in the road standing there saying, do you see the one who will judge you, Simon? You are caught in the gall of bitterness. You think these people, that, that the way they think about you, you think that matters more than standing before the Holy One of Israel. You're caught. And he looks around and he says, you pray for me. I can't pray. It could be. I don't know if this is condescension in Simon or some other version of worldly grief. It could be that he is instantly hardened in his heart. Maybe the rebuke and the truth, it just went, whoop, and concrete appeared. And maybe he folds his arms. <laughs> Who does this guy think he is telling me that I need to blah, blah, blah? Nah. That's your truth. It's mine. You leave me alone. Yeah, you pray for me, Peter. Maybe that's it. That's easy to deal with if we're honest, right? I mean, if, somebody deal, if you're sharing the gospel with someone and they just go super hard all of a sudden, I mean, it breaks your heart because you want to see a heart you know, soften to the rebuke, to the truth of God. But, but man, it's easy to deal with, right? However, I think it could also be that in this moment, he is wetting the tears of the altar of God. But I think he's doing it from a worldly sorrow, not a godly one. You know, there's a message for people like that back in the Old Testament, the very last book of Malachi. God talks to the priests in Malachi and he tells them, you wet my altar with tears while you neglect the wife of your youth. You come with repentance. You come saying, God, forgive me. I'm sorry. But you bring me dirty, nasty lambs. You're leading the people into debauchery. You're forgetting your own wife. You're committing adultery with foreign gods. And you come to me still and say, I'm sorry, God. I'm sorry. And God says, I don't want nothing to do with it. I hate it. That is not the faith. Maybe that's Simon here. Maybe his tears are big and heavy, and yet they're still connected to a heart that somehow deep inside believes it'll be you, God, and a little bit of me. You know, like salvation, the equation in my heart is, yeah, I need you, God. Please forgive me for what I've done. I don't want to do it again. I hate my sin, but it is mine, though. It's my sin. And so I'm going to do it with you, and I'm going to get better. It's not salvation. It could be either of those. It's hard for us to really know. But I think Simon may be in this second category, which if we're being honest, is hard. It's hard. It's hard to labor alongside each other. You know, I think of these people in Samaria. They, I mean, they, they had a friendship with Simon, right? And they're all going the way of Jesus. And clearly, they thought he was too. But then all of a sudden, discernment from heaven comes and calls him out, and he's not willing to repent. And what are they supposed to do? When they go to the synagogue to break bread or house to house, and he shows up, what are they supposed to do? Simon, have you repented, brother? Have you, have you listened to what Peter said? Have you considered the things of God and who you are? You can't purchase God. You're caught, man. You know, we don't know. We know this, though. Peter is not some charlatan that's being deceived when he shows up. He shows up, he preaches, he says, hey, repent and believe. Simon decides, I'm going to stay and I'm going to pray. Whatever reason Luke includes this in, in your Bible, he contrasts it immediately after verse 24. He contrasts it with verse 25. Now, when they had testified, the apostles, and spoke in the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. 
I want you in closing here to contrast the actions of the apostles here with Simon. There's Simon. He sits in his unbelief asking anyone and everyone, will you pray for me? Will you help me? Will you do this? All the while not facing up to eternity, I've sinned against you and you alone, God, forgive me, and receiving assurance of pardon so that then his relationships can be reconciled, right? There's the con, not staying and praying, and then what do we see? What's the contrast? Here's the apostles. What are they doing? They're going, man. Right? They have testified, they've spoken the truth, and now they continue. It is sad this morning to read this, considering the reality of them leaving Simon there. But take heart, church. I, I want to encourage us. They're leaving him in the best place they can. They're they have loved him well. Simon's still breathing air, and he still has a chance. Now, unfortunately, church history goes on to tell us that he becomes the father, basically, of Gnosticism, which is super unfortunate. Some people think that's true. Some people don't. Regardless, I tell you this much. As long, after this moment, he was breathing air. The message of the gospel was bouncing around in his head. There was still hope. And as them Samaritans led by Philip for a little bit longer till he's about to be moved on, as long as they know it, you know what they know? And they know, hey, we're holding out an authentic message to this guy. So there's still hope for Simon. But look at the difference, man. One stays and prays. The others, they go and they obey God. It's beautiful. I mean, they just go, right? I mean, like they, they checked it out and what's happening? They go back to Jerusalem. But look how they went. Look how they lived. I mean, Jerusalem is where their job was. Jerusalem is where their livelihood has become now, Right? But what are they doing on the way? They're preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. They literally said, uh-oh, God did it through Philip. Let's go up there and see what happened. Yep, Jesus affirmed it. Amen. Praise God. And now they're going to go back. Hey, they could have said, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, this checks that. Cool, let's go back to Jerusalem. And they could have just not even talked to anybody. They don't. What do they do? Every single little town on the way back. They stop and they say, hey, you, do you know the good news of the excellencies of God, the creator of the cosmos, who, who created you in his own image? Do you know the sin that you have that separates you from God? And do you know God has provided a way of salvation in Christ? If you would repent and believe the gospel, you too can have eternal life in him. And they did that. Now, don't throw yourself, if you, you, know, if you feel like Simon more than you feel like the apostles, be leery of throwing yourself into service in some legalistic way. But also, let me say this. Don't be so leery that you never throw yourself into the work. That's our, that's our biggest conundrum in Reformed camps. They even call us hyper in it sometimes. Do not be so weary and leery of legalism in regards to things like evangelism and Bible reading and things you want to do as a Christian. Don't be so leery and have that check of your spirit that you actually never commit yourself to it. Be diligent. I mean, see this difference. The conned people, like, they're going to they're gonna have their charlatan magic tricks, but not the disciples. They got a mission. They love it. They live for it. And when they don't feel like it, they do it. I'm sure one of them had a headache. I'm sure Peter or John probably felt bad. I'm sure they probably, I mean, Peter's probably got his wife and kids all on his mind because he was a married man. But you know what he's doing? He's preaching the gospel. The apostles found their assurance and hope in Christ alone. They enter every village. They preach the gospel. The con will always want to stay and pray. One more conversation. The converted, they're always going to want to go and obey. Go and obey. Simony is a hard stopover in our journey through Acts, but it is an important one. 
Again, I want to remind you as we study Acts, there are principles in every little passage that somehow God in his magnificent glory has somehow wrote about later in the, in the church's letters. Like we literally can understand things like God and how he handles unbelief in the church regarding church discipline. We, can, we have an answer for simony, right? But this is just a snapshot. But it's a hard one. It's a hard one for me to stop over here and see as we journey on to the ends of the world with God in Acts. It's hard for me to slow down. But I think the church's mission and purpose come into very sharp focus in a passage like this. We're called to model the authentic faith once delivered to the saints that's exampled here by Philip and by Peter and by John. We are also called to be very seriously sensitive to the Simons. They will be among us. This is a fact. Jesus said it. We're seeing the first example here. Now, we cannot do any of that. Be like them or have discernment over someone who's committing simony apart from Christ himself. He really is all we have. All we have is Christ. And let me pray. Let's sing about that together now and then respond in the Lord's Supper. God, all we have is you. Thank you, Lord, that we know more than the psalm. We know the shepherd. It's you who laid down his life willingly for us, the sheep. I pray that as we sing about all we have is you, grant our hearts more faith. Lord, will you now even remind us of whether we are conned or we are converted. Father, we have great hope that, that, that you have called us to repent like Simon, and we have found you to be one who not only calls us to that, but also has given us your spirit that can accomplish our faith and repentance. Will you remind us of the hope we have in you as we sing and as we respond in confessing our sins? In Jesus' name, amen.